What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from IndieHackers.com, and you're listening to the Indie Hackers podcast. More people than ever are building cool stuff online and making a lot of money in the process. And on this show, I sit down with these indie hackers to discuss the ideas, the opportunities, and the strategies they're taking advantage of so the rest of us can do the same. I'm here with uh, Amjad Massad, founder of Repolit. Uh, Repolit, one of my favorite companies, uh, probably because I think your strategy is just so cool. Like I'm like very captivated by the strategy. But for listeners who don't know what Repolit is, maybe uh, you can introduce them to your product. Yeah, totally. So Replit is an online programming environment, a collaborative environment, but also a community, a community of builders, a community of learners, a community of educators. It's a sort of one-stop shop to go all the way from writing your first line of code, learning programming to shipping something. So we'll host it for you. We'll also give you primitives to build on top of. We'll give you a database right in your IDE. We'll give you auth, give you pretty powerful compute infrastructure. And, you know, our vision for this is that you, at least initially, you should not worry about all the utter torture of setting up a development environment, maintaining the packages, maintaining the environment. And we just want to make it really easy to get started, really easy to share with other people, really easy to collaborate with with other people as well. Yeah, it reminds me of like, in a way, like video games. Like I just started playing this game the other day called Hades. And I don't play a lot of video games, but once I do, I just like get deep into it. And like, yeah. if you get really good at this game, there are so many different options and configurations and different variables and different powers and power-ups and like a million different things. But the very first time you go through the game, all of that's turned off, and they just have you play through the level with the most basic stuff, and you don't have to see any of the complexity. And back in the day, that used to be good enough for being a software engineer, but like today, it's like you immediately jump in with all the options turned on. And so I think what's cool about Repolit is like you kind of like, I guess you can give users like sort of a graduated experience to learning how to code. Like they don't have to see all that crazy stuff, but they also don't ever have to like stop using Repolit and be like, well, this is as far as Repolit can go. Now I've graduated, I'm going to go, you know, go use a real quote-unquote programming environment. But I think like stepping back for a second, one of the things that's really cool to me about Repolit, uh, I mentioned earlier, is just the strategy. And like I think the strategy you guys have is very connected to your ambition. And so maybe I can try to give you, from like an outsider's point of view, looking in like what I think your strategy is, and you can tell me if this is like, if I've got it or if I'm off the mark. Please, that'd be fun. Um, so I've taught a lot of people to code in my life, maybe five or six people to code. It's very frustrating. There's a lot that, quite frankly, doesn't get done very well. And there's a lot that, like, coding websites don't teach you. Like, you know, it's almost like if you teach someone to drive a car, uh, you just, you know, show them the clutch and the steering wheel and the brake, but then, like, they have no idea, like, how to actually read traffic signs or how to actually parallel park or go into a parking garage or all these other things that you need to know to do a car. It's kind of like that programming. And so with Repolit, it seems like the strategy is to get in on the entry level and be like the best possible place for somebody to learn how to code. You're thinking about all these different gaps so that people can actually be real software engineers and not just kind of learn parts of code, but not learn how to set up their environment or not learn how to use their computer or not learn how to host a server. And then I think what's really cool is that that is positioning you at the top of the funnel. Like these are the people who are just now learning how to code, like teenagers in many cases. 
And instead of saying, okay, well, off you go, like we've taught you how to code, go use a different development environment, you're configuring Repl.it so that they never have to stop using it. They can keep using it and they can build like real world applications on Repl.it and like that's just how they code. And I think that's super cool to be at the top of the funnel like that. Like Paul Graham has a really good quote. He said the most important thing he learned that he used in both BioWeb and Y Combinator is that the low end eats the high end. That it's good to be the entry level option even though that's less prestigious because if you're not, somebody else will be the entry level option and they'll squash you up against the ceiling. And I think that's kind of like what it seems like Repl.it is doing. It's kind of like, all right, we're going to be the entry-level option. And from there, like once we capture all these people, we can direct them where we want to go. Where we want to direct them is to keep them on Repl.it. And so there's kind of this ambitious vision where, like, I don't know, 10 years from now, some humongous percentage of people are not only learning, not only learning how to code on Repl.it, but also writing actual code on Repl.it. And you've captured a huge percentage of the growth and the software engineers that exist in the world. How how do I do? How does that do for describing Repl.it's yeah, strategy? Yeah, I, I I think that the the business strategy absolutely hundred percent correct. And what Paul uh, was was talking about, you know, Peter Thiel talks about is the idea of like toys. Someone like Chris Dixon also talks about the idea of things that that look like toys at, at the start, right? And this actually goes back to Clay Christensen's idea of the innovator's dilemma, right? He introduced the concept of disruption which became a buzzword, but it actually had a very interesting and very precise meaning, which is a technology that is actually not very powerful to go compete with incumbent and captures the low end of the market, the underserved part of the market that no one's paying attention to. And then by nature of technology, by nature of how things happen, it ends up being a disruptive force and eventually eats up market as well. Like the most known example is the PC, right? The microcomputer, the x86 architecture, you know, there was like the mainframes and, and mini computers and those were like the business computers, but then you had the uh, early Apple computer and, and things like that, that were looked at as toys. You know, it wasn't, there was no killer app yet for, for Apple. People bought them for educational purposes. The big like mainframe computer manufacturers never saw them uh, as a threat until like really late for them to react to. And the Clay Christensen's idea is that actually it's like very rational for the incumbent, the one who's already winning, who's who has the top side of the market, to not pay attention to the low end of the market because your customers are not asking for this disruptive technology. They're asking for better performance. They're asking for more advanced features. They're dragging you actually up and up market. And by the way, the the economies of it is also dragging you off market because this is where the money is. And you see it with a lot of, actually a lot of like startups when they, when they start selling to an enterprise, like the, the whole startup changes, it becomes less user-friendly. And the reason is because there's no incentive anymore to be consumer-friendly and then your main goal is to sell an enterprise. So this is like the whole cluster of ideas is very much uh, like the innovator's dilemma idea. And for us, like it, it seems like things are playing that way. For us, like thinking strategically and being business savvy is very important for us to survive as a business. But when we're thinking day to day, we're not thinking in this like very Machiavellian way. How do we get people capture them and all of that? We're just thinking about like what is the next awesome thing we can build to make the experience on Replit a lot more powerful, a lot more exciting holding constant the uh, entry to programming and actually improving the entry to programming. Yeah, 
yeah, the business strategy stuff is fun and it's worked in there and yeah. it's cool how like nicely it fits in with you just making a better product for more people. How did yeah. you get to a point where you wanted to build something so ambitious? I mean, this is a tremendously ambitious vision, right? You just raised like a yeah. ridiculous amount of money, close to a billion dollar valuation. I mostly talk to like any hackers on this show who like aren't raising any money and they're just like, I want enough money to like feed myself and my family, right? Like how did you as a person decide that you wanted to build something that was so world changing when obviously you could use your talents to do something that's like, I don't know, simpler, easier, more laid back. Yeah, yeah. So when I was a teenager, I thought that, you know, I, I, I'd been programming since I was six years old. You know, I grew up in Jordan. There was no computers for a really long time. It was early 90s, very few computers. My father was, uh, still is an engineer, and he was really intrigued by computers. Although they were really, really expensive, they were above our means. He took took a loan to be able to buy this computer, and he bought a computer. And we were like the first people I knew that we had we had computers, and I was fascinated by them. And I, I was like six years old, and I like one of my earliest memories was, you know, standing behind my dad's shoulder and seeing him type like MKDIR, you know, make a directory, a CD, and you know, DOS commands. I was like, whoa, this is insane! Like you can talk to the computer, and it can like do stuff for you. And so yeah. I got I got really hooked early on, and I always loved to think about the future and like what the future might hold. So I built my first business when I was uh, when I was a teenager. I, I loved going to land games and play Counter Strike. I was like, yeah. really obsessed with that. And one of the interesting things about it in Jordan, I don't know if the same in, in the U.S., but they didn't use software to manage these land cafes. I was like, wait, like you have all these computers, yet you're doing everything by pen and paper, you're like tapping people on the shoulder <laughs> to like, to, to like, you know, pay more money. And so I offered to write software for them. And that was the first business that I built was like, a, just a complete land management system. I was 15, 16 years old. When was this? Like a, what, what, what year around? 2000, 2001. I think I started okay. working on it when I was 14. So that, that would have been 2001. Are you and 34 now? It. Yeah. Okay, we're the exact same age. So you have like this oh, like, awesome. perfect skill set. Like, because uh, I was born in 1987. So you're a computer yeah. programmer from an early age. Also, you have like a penchant for entrepreneurship and seeing problems. And it's like the late 90s. It's like the perfect cocktail to become a startup founder, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But here's the here's the interesting part. I was like convinced that software was going to be automated by AI. And I was, I had this vision of like, oh, AI will generate all the code. Mm -hmm. And then we're only going to be servicing the, the computers because the computers will do most of the work. We'll I don't just know be how mechanics. I got <laughs> we'll just yeah, be yeah, yeah. with screwdrivers and wrenches. Exactly. And I got into computer engineering instead of computer science, instead of software, because I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm just going to build the computers and they're going to program <laughs> themselves. It's like, you know, I need job safety, you know, and, and now in, in retrospect, like, once AIs can generate software end to end completely, that's like the end of everything that we know. That's the right. singularity because they can do whatever. They can they can write programs to do to do whatever. But eventually, I got deeper into programming. I started learning about the history of computing. Started learning about Lisp and Scheme, and you see that in a lot of Replit's uh, lineage. The one thing that that really jumped at me was that programming is such a unique artistic endeavor. It feels like the programmer is one of the most useful, interesting profession of the 21st century. 
So this the fundamental observation that I made back then was like this idea of like AI automating software. It's kind of crazy. That's not going to happen anytime soon. Not only that, but the programmer is going to be so, so valuable in the future that like one of the things to, to work on is to build tools for programmers. And the other thing is to make sure that that opportunity is open to everyone in, in the world. And, and so that, that kind of started the multi-decade adventure of, you know, making tools that took me you know, to Facebook, I worked on React and React Native and, you know, with Code Academy and then Replit, it's about like making programming more accessible, getting it to more people. But when we were starting Replit, the, we were thinking like, you know, like a bootstrapping mindset, one of your entrepreneurs, it's like, what is the beachhead market? What is the first thing we go after? The first business we went after is an API business. And we actually got it to like 2000 MRR or something like that. I was actually paying enough of the bills, we could, uh, I don't think we were wrong and profitable. We were very close to it. So give me give me the story behind that. That's super fascinating because I think there's a lot yeah, of paths to raising money. A lot of people come out and they're like, "I've got to raise money before I start." It's not as common for people to like bootstrap something that's profitable and then say, "Okay, I'm going to raise money." So how did how did you come up with the idea for something that could be, I guess, ramen profitable? Yeah, so you know we had the advantage of this being a side product for many years, right? So when I was in Jordan, we built the kind of predecessor to Replit, which was an open source project that allowed you to run code in arbitrary languages in the browser, right? And Code Academy ended up using some of that software, and that got me to the US to work at, at Code Academy. All the while, Replit as a, as, a, as a product was there, but it was like more like a demo page. You just what this technology could do. It right. didn't have any signups. You could only write uh, like one file and run that. Uh, it had a few languages only. Um, did you license it to Code Academy? Were they paying you for it? Or did you just like sort of give it to no, them? No, it was open source. I oh, just okay. open sourced it. And, and a bunch of other, yeah, a bunch of other companies started using that. And, you know, I was I was really excited about it. Uh, Udacity used parts of our software as well. So it was open source. It was free for anyone to use. I, I, I believe we're the first to kind of make that like, you know, in-browser sandbox. And so like, I was thrilled that I got a job. I, I kind of abandoned the project because like Code Academy also like had a really ambitious plan and mission. And so the project was on the side, you know, it was like running itself. And I, I left Code Academy in 2013, went to work at Facebook, moved to California from New York. And then my wife and I, my wife, Haya, is a designer and we work together on a project all the time. And so we worked on a, on a game at some point. We worked on, a, on multiple different apps. Some of them did not launch. And at some point, Haya was looking for a job. She was having a lot of trouble finding a job. I don't know why. She's very talented. She's like the VP of, of design at, at Replit right now. She's our co-founder. And she would go from interview to interview, and she would not get even like past the first, uh, the first thing. And so we had this idea of, okay, what if you built more projects and kind of fortified your portfolio so that when you go into these interviews, they can, they can see your skills. And we're like, okay, let's, let's go through the things that we can build together. And we started going through them. I was like, oh, whatever happened to Replit? Uh, I was like, yeah, it's still running. I get emails every now and then. There's like 10,000 users on it a month or something like that. And I was like, okay, let's dig into that. And so she constructed a user interview research she you know we sent it out we sent out a bunch of surveys and started looking at like what people are using it for 
start looking at more qualitative, also user feedback, what people are looking to do with it. At the same time, I was also really interested in playing around with Docker, with Go. I was learning Go. And I was like, okay, I want to, you know, one of the limitations of Replit is that it runs in the browser. I want to be able to run it on the server so that we can do a lot more for the user, including access to packages, including access to the entire language, more languages, make it easier to add languages. So I started rewriting it on the weekends and nights while working at Facebook to be this like container execution system. And we, we built one of the first uh, ones out there. Now there's, there's a lot of people that are building that. Um, and it, like, as soon as we released it, it added a few languages. Haya had the idea of adding signups and users. So that was 2015 and we start seeing like insane amount of growth. And we're like, okay, interesting. Like this is, <laughs> this is becoming more than a side project. Yeah. Where were these users coming from? I think some SEO because, you know, Replit was around for a long time and like people linked to, to it. Like when you search Python, online Python IDE, whatever it was popped up and then retention just got better. People were just cycling through just because it did not work very well. And so the, the MAUs went up a lot and then people started talking about it. And then when we dug more into the user research, we found that one of the ways people found out about it is from their teachers. So if you, you know, high school, boot camp, college teachers were really interested in it. Unsurprisingly, because my use case for it was essentially at school. And so we're like, oh, okay, interesting. That's an interesting uh, use case. We planted a flag in that. And then one thing that started materializing was that a lot of people were trying to create these in-browser coding experience, similar to what what happened when I released the open source kind of in-browser sandbox, a lot of, you know, coding sites started popping up for training, assessments, all these things. And we're like, okay, interesting. We can be the platform that provides this technology because like people were still using the old open source projects. So I started directing people. We have an API. I started doing some user research and we immediately got a, got a couple of customers just based on the open source project. And so I, I wrote a documentation for the API and it was really easy. You kind of select a language and you eval and we return the results for you. And then put up a landing page. Actually, I think Replit uh, was mentioned on your podcast at some point, your podcast with Vincent uh, Wu yeah. of Quotapad. And I think Vincent was inspired by Replit as well to create, I don't know if he used some of the source code initially. I bet he did. And he built this experience around coding interviews. And so there was a ton of people trying to do things like that to build coding experiences. And as they're doing the research, they'll find our open source project. I left a link from the open source project back to, to, to like the actual site where they can sign up and pay. And so I guess it was like an open source led kind of marketing. We, we, we got up to like, you know, a couple thousand MRR at that point. The idea of starting a startup started becoming more real. I wrote a thread the other day about all the ways I didn't want to start a startup, all the ways I tried to not start it. So when it started growing, I went to my boss at Facebook and said, look, I have this like side project. It's growing. I don't use company time to work on it. It was all on the weekends. And my wife is working on it. Um, like what if it, what if I, you know, bring it back to Facebook and start working on it there and. You know, he was so nice. We tried to find a home for it. There wasn't any mm-hmm. appeal. 
I emailed Zuck at some point. It was like, hey, let, like, you know, buy this thing. I'll this. work on yeah. it. <laughs> so what did he and, say? Uh, he didn't reply. We have a lot of investors in common, so I'm sure right. he'll, he'll learn about us. And then it was like, okay, like then some of the customers that of the API uh, were interested in buying Replit. I was like, okay, what if I merge it with them and I could like go work on it as like an employee, I wouldn't be a founder or at least like, you know, a co-founder, I have other co-founders. And so I tried to merge it with a couple of different startups. What's interesting is that we're way larger. We're like 10 to 100x larger than those startups that I tried to right. sell to early on. Well, this is exactly um, what I mean. Like in the early days, like you might have had the vision, but also it's like it's hard to be like that we're going to do with Repolit. You know, it's like, actually, why don't we sell to these people? Why don't we get sucked to buy it? Why don't we? Because <laughs> it's just not that obvious, like how big you can take it on your own sometimes. Yeah. And, and look, I'm an engineer and like I want to code and I want to invent. Like mm -hmm. I knew the CEO job was going to be tough. Like it's going to, it's going to take you away from everything that you enjoyed. You know, yeah. the, um, that's the tragedy of startups. <laughs> the, the, the thing that makes you excited about the thing you want to build end up being chores that you have to do to just yeah. support the business and yeah. make it a sustainable thing. So if you really like what you're doing, don't make it a startup is my advice. Or if what your vision for it is so important that you're willing to, to take some sacrifice in terms of like what your job could be at least for a long time. Right now, I'm getting back some of the enjoyment of the early days because I have leadership team that I can depend on right now. Right. right. And I'm starting to build in time to like learn new things and, you know, imagine the future and like talk to you and go out to talk to people. But yeah. for a really long time, like just like bootstrapping a business is so tough. What was a turning point where you realized like what the next step would be? Because eventually you figured it out. I mean, you're here today. Like what, was there like a singular turning point? You know, at some point, Haya and I, sort of went on a went on a, on a some kind of trip to look into our souls and understand whether we really want to do this and understand whether we're willing to take some sacrifice and we're willing to go into something really really hard and by the way you have to remember 2015 16 was a way different venture environment than it is right now like startup environment than it is right now it wasn't entirely clear like how big tech and startups is, is, is going to be. So it's, a, it's like totally different world. And ultimately we're like, okay, we have this thing that's exploding onto the world. It has a lot of expenses. It has a lot of users. It has a lot of needs. There's no way for us to find a, like a good home for it and continue to work on it. And then we really look deeply into ourselves and, and ask the questions like, do we care about this vision? Do we care about this mission? Are we willing to risk a lot of things? Because it was very risky, especially as immigrants, we don't have a lot of savings and we ended up putting something like 20, 30K in the company before we got venture investments. And so that was the, the, the main thing was that really answering that question is like, do we care about it? Do we really care about it to work on it for the next five to 10 years? You applied to get into Y Combinator, they rejected you. Today, Paul Graham's an investor in Replin, one of your mentors. Why do you think they didn't spot the potential in your company back then. I mean, in many ways, it's probably like, you know, arguably a failure on YC's part. 
like they should have spotted you. You obviously have become like a much bigger company. You have a huge potential. What do you think was going on? It could be my issue of like not pitching it correctly. It's also, you know, the idea of like things that look like toys that actually have a really high potential is one of those things that even if you take it into consideration, you're still going to miss some startups. I'm sure you, you've had friends who you were so supportive of, you didn't think their startup idea was great, but then they blow up. I've had yep. that experience. Yep. And, and startups are so counterintuitive. Honestly, like, you know, VCs get a lot of shit uh, on Twitter for being, uh, you know, pattern matchers and for having these very simple heuristics. But like, how else would you deal with this like weird thing is like Google is the 10th startup to do search, but somehow it became this like, you know, multiple trillion dollar company instead of the other nine. Like, how, how would you think about that? And so like, I don't fault uh, YC for, for missing us, not once, not twice, three times. But um, it's 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 hard. So like you know, I don't know what to say. I mean, the other thing about YC is that I think I think for a while there was this shift towards like companies with more business traction. I don't know if that's still the case. I think now they widened the funnel a bit. But I think for a period of time, the companies that were making it into YC had like more like SaaS business traction. And I think the 2015 16 was like. I don't know if it was a hype. SaaS was still pretty hype. But the, people were really excited by the idea of SaaS. Like it made startups more predictable, right? right? It's like, it's oh, you a have recurring revenue. Yeah, it, it, it had a playbook. And I think a lot of the funding uh, went to that. Right. That makes sense. You also mentioned something that I found to be true, which is that often like taking on the role of being a founder can mean that something that you once loved is now kind of just hard and unpleasant, right? There's like lots of hard things on being a founder. In your particular case, like I can tell that you love programming. Obviously you've loved coding. You like, you love, like you talk about like the different features of Repolo with like clear, like a smile on your face because you're very excited about this kind of stuff. What was hard about being a founder for you in particular? You know, what were like the hard parts where when you decided, okay, it's not going to be a project, we're going to actually try to turn this into a company. What did you have to sacrifice to do that? I, I think a lot of just, plain chores you have to do when starting the company. You have to set up the company correctly. You have to pay attention to all the legal work. You have to learn what does it mean to be a corporation. Once you hire people, you have to be, you have to treat them right. You have to think about the benefits, think about their compensation, think about their uh, salaries. There's all these ways in which the thing that you were doing that you were good at is not the main thing that you you start doing as a as a founder, right? So like I was good at programming, good at designing products, good at um, infrastructure, and I wasn't like I never had to to really spend any significant significant amount of time in Excel. I had to do some kind of like you know cash flow statements or or a balance sheet. I had to learn all the these finance and accounting terms. When it came to fundraising, I had to learn what VCs were, what is what are their incentives, how does the you know venture world works, and all of that stuff is like things I wasn't intrinsically interested in. The hardest thing is you know being on this manager schedule of being very interrupt driven, doing things in fifteen to thirty minute increments. It's the worst. Versus actually. Yeah, versus actually going deep 
if you spend a lot of time in that in that mode, interrupt-driven mode, you actually lose lose the ability to go deep in a lot of ways. Paul Graham has this article, the manager maker schedule, which absolutely works. Like if you should do it, especially if you're bootstrapping, if you're building and selling. The way I did it was like 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. was the interrupt-driven kind of management work. And then 3 p.m. I would like go to the gym and then work out and then come back at four to start my like maker shift. And it will go until 12 p.m. or something like that. And that that helped a lot and that kept me kind of sharp and kept my skill going. When it started getting really, really stressful and really detrimental to, to my health was how difficult our domain is. Like the thing about giving compute for free on the internet is you're giving something really, really valuable. Especially in the age of crypto, you can turn compute into money. We have alchemy for the first time. You transmute compute, you transmit electricity, compute into actual dollars. And so if you're someone who's considering to do anything with coding online, that's something you're going to have to deal with, which is people will come to your service and exploit it to do crypto mining. And that was the, the hardest thing I had to deal with. Like, I'll tell you a story that it kind of gives you an idea of how hard it was to protect the service. I think it was it was Thanksgiving like 2017 and we're like three people working in the company. There was like dark web group that figured out that Replit is this like really powerful compute infrastructure that you can use in very interesting ways. So they reverse engineered our protocol and they figured out how to spin up containers. And then they started selling attacks on the dark web for Bitcoin. So you would go to them through Tor, whatever, and you would buy an attack on say indiehacker.com. So they what they would do is they would like start all these replica containers and do like a UDP flood attack on, on IndieHacker. They'll do a DOS attack or like a botnet attack. And you know, we had to fight them for months because every hole we 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 kind of block, we see them kind of finding another one. So and we did a lot of, yeah, we did a lot of social engineering as well. We got into their Discord server, started figuring out what they're talking about <laughs> uh, and how they find the next hole. And so it was like this multi-month thing where I'm waking up in the middle of the night, you know, fighting hackers and attackers and and all of that stuff. So that, that was the really the hardest part about it is that not only building, selling, finding the business model, but also fighting fraud was yep. like, it was like, why am I doing this? Like, why am I doing this to myself? <laughs> it's crazy. I've had similar things yeah. with indie hackers. Maybe not that intense. Uh, and I didn't respond as cleverly. Like I didn't go into their Discord chat groups and stuff. But like, <laughs> there's a lot of lists online where like, oh, you want uh, to promote your startup? You know, pay us 30 bucks. We'll spam these websites. And they'll put indie hackers on the list. And they'll just create bots and create accounts to just make crappy posts. And there's a lot of people who do uh, SEO spam too, where they'll be like, oh, there's a soccer game. We've created an illegal live streaming site for it, but we need to rank high on Google. So we'll make a post on Andy Hackers, and that post will just link to our live streaming website. And Andy Hackers is highly reputable in Google's eyes. So then they're you know at the top of Google for a day. And I'll log on and be like, wow, our traffic's through the roof. What's going on? And all of it's going to this one post because these spammers are posting stuff. And it's relentless. Like I kind of yeah. uh, closed off the community a few months back. It might just be temporary, I'm not sure, but I'm like, invite only. 
And I started getting DMs on Twitter from spammers who were like, hey, I can't get back into the site. Can you give me an invite code? And I look at their account on Twitter. They're just like a straightforward, like unabashed spammer. I'm like, no, you can't get an invite code. Absolutely not. But it's, uh, it comes with the territory when you build any sort of large online free tool. There are going to be people out there who right. try to figure out how to use it for their own gain and don't particularly care about what you're trying to do and whether or not they're ruining it for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why we can't have nice things as a thing. <laughs> Is there anything that as a founder that you've, I guess, didn't plan on doing when you went in because you just wanted to do Replit itself, but that you actually grew to like? You know, Do you like talking to investors? Do you like running a company and managing a team? I grew to like some of the finance and accounting things, surprisingly. I was very surprised about that, that I'm like actually interested Especially like, you know, I started like playing around with uh, Robin Hood uh, a while back just for fun and ended up doing relatively well. I mean, everyone is doing well now, but you know, you, you start getting interested in like, how do you value businesses? How do you look at companies? How do you read financial statements? And it ended up also helping me uh, you know, think about our business. And so that's, that's something I started enjoying. I, I enjoy fundraising as well. Like it's not, it's always brutal, always kind of like saps you of your energy and, and uh, you need a lot of time to recover after that. But it's also, you talk to the people, you, you talk to your heroes. Like I, at the last fundraise, I was able to meet uh, Peter Thiel. Obviously, Paul Graham is, is involved. Before that, Martin Dreesen. I, I met everyone that I looked up to in, in tech. And, you know, that's, that's amazing. And that's, I'm very blessed about that. You know, that's one reason to, to enjoy fundraising, even, even the like, you know, HR and employee stuff and compensation, all of that, you start thinking about like, how can we do it differently? How can we be better? How can we ensure that our employees are, are happy, well rewarded and all these things. And it ends up being an interesting challenge, especially if you're thinking about things from first principles and you end up, you know, seeing a lot of things that actually are not working and people do them anyways, because that's what you do. And so you start questioning things and actually end up being fun to kind of design the organization. The culture is a really fun things to, to, to design, especially if you do things differently. And so the, the idea of like running businesses becomes not only tolerable, but kind of interesting. And I see why, I see why entrepreneurs do it multiple times is because it's, it becomes a skill that you're good at, that you're good at structuring companies, you're good at structuring teams, you're good at recruiting. Yeah. It's crazy that your list of things that you grew to like is longer than your list of things <laughs> that, you, <Yeah. laughs> that you didn't want to do. But I think it's kind of true in life that often things look scary or hard or annoying from the outside. And then once you start yeah. doing it and you get a little bit of confidence it starts to be really rewarding and entertaining. Learning how to code is honestly no different. I think it's much more fun to know how to code and be able to do all sorts of stuff than it is to be frustrated in those first few weeks and months struggling and fighting against your tools. I want to let you go, Amjad. Thanks so much for coming on the show and sharing your story with the Indie Hackers audience. Is there anywhere in particular that Indie Hackers should go to learn more about what you're up to? I share a lot about our community, our product, our, our tools, our vision on, on Twitter. So I'm A Masad, A-M-A-S-A-D on Twitter. Check out Replit. I really want it to be at some point a great place for indie hackers and in your community, bootstrappers, independent creators. And uh, look, try to use it. Try to run part of your business on top of it. Try to use it for prototyping. Tell us what's missing and we'll be happy to build it. Cool. Thanks again, Andrade.